But the question I'm going to start with is, are some people not worth preaching to? So when I was at uni, there was one guy in particular who, who just didn't seem open to Christianity. He, he was really a committed atheist. So he, he knew Christianity well. He'd actually shared houses with, with several Christians, and they'd all try to share Christianity with him, share, call him to trust in Jesus and love him. He'd weighed it up, but he didn't believe. Now, we had a talk for non-Christians on at university, and the question, of course, is, should I invite him? To be honest, I didn't think he'd go. I mean, he'd been overexposed. He was committed to living without God. He felt moral enough. Why would he bother? But I invited him anyway, and surprisingly, he said yes. Went along, heard the talk, but it didn't make any difference. He criticised the speaker, made fun of him, and then moved on. So did I waste my time? Was he never going to believe? I mean... What we've been hearing is that God elects some people to salvation. Only the people God chooses turn to him. Was it obvious he wouldn't believe? Should I have taken the hint? Was he obviously not elect? Should I have spent my time on someone else, focused only on the people that want God? Only those genuinely seeking him? Is that how election works? The question we've got to ask is, what would it take for Matt to be saved? What needs to happen before Matt will be a God bloke, the sort of guy that's keen for God? Well, Christianity says, God says, he needs two things. Jesus had to die and rise again for him. And then Matt has to put his trust in Jesus. Matt can't do anything about Jesus dying and rising. That, that's a historical fact. It's been in God. That's not Matt, Matt's job. But trusting Jesus is Matt's responsibility, isn't it? Matt can hear the gospel and believe it. Or Matt can weigh it up and reject it. The ball's in Matt's court. What's very clear in the Bible is, is you need to believe to be saved. If Matt doesn't put his trust in Jesus, if he doesn't stop rejecting Jesus as his king, Matt's not going to be saved. He's not a Christian. Jesus' death won't save him. So... So an important question becomes, why don't people believe the gospel? Why won't Matt believe? What stops people accepting God? Now, there are different answers to this question. And we're going to look at three alternatives, three explanations why people don't believe the gospel. There are alternatives that were around at the time of the remonstrance, the time in which we've been looking at these guys that complained. But the first alternative we're going to look at is actually not theirs. The first alternative is that people reject God's grace. This is actually traditional Roman Catholicism. The thinking is, God provides what we need to obey him, but, but not everyone accepts. Some people don't care. They don't grab hold of God's offer. So think of it like you're drowning. Okay, You're miles from shore, but God sees you, he wants to save you, so he throws you a life preserver. Gives you what you need to stay afloat. All you have to do is reach out and grab the life's preserver. Then you can get to shore. We can't save ourselves. We need God's help. God's grace makes up what we lack. 
So for Roman Catholics, God's grace, it's like an aeroplane. There's no way I could get to London on my own. My body's not that powerful, I haven't got wings. But hop on a plane and I'm there in a day. God's grace makes up the difference. It, it, it makes the impossible possible. So what's the story with my mate Matt? Well, he's rejected God's grace. God offered to forgive him. He offered to give him his Holy Spirit. But Matt rejected it. Didn't want his gift. He's seen the life preserver and, and swum the other way. Now, there's actually a, a massive problem with this view of grace. The problem is, salvation depends on you. You need to grab the life preserver. You need to get on the plane. That, that initial effort, that desire for God, has to come from you. It's entirely your work. God doesn't help. Before God can change you, you have to move towards God. And that means you're saved partly by what you do. You're saved by grace and work. But that's not what the Bible says. Have a look at that first reading. Look at Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is all by God's grace. There's no place for our effort. And that's what the Reformation was all about. So the Reformers came along and they said, that's wrong. We're not saved by God's grace plus our effort. It's God's grace alone, by Jesus alone, through faith alone. And so the Reformers said, people aren't saved because... People aren't saved because... God doesn't save them. God hasn't shown them kindness. They're not objects of his grace. If someone rejects the gospel, it, it shows God hasn't saved them. He hasn't given them new life. They're, they're still dead in their sins. They pointed to passages like Ephesians 2. It says on your outline, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions in sin. In transgressions, that's in sin. It is by grace you have been saved. People are spiritually dead. There's no way we can want God. We're not just drowning. We're floating face down, dead in the water. So for God to save us, he has to swim out, grab hold of us, drag us in and resuscitate us. The reformers said... God's grace is, is more than the ability to be saved. It's his whole attitude towards us. Grace is God's favour. The, the very fact that God acts to save you is his grace. His kindness towards you. So the reason my mate didn't accept Jesus was God hadn't saved him. God hadn't looked on him in kindness, hadn't been gracious toward him. He wasn't an object of God's love. But, along come the remonstrators, the complainers. Jeff prefers whingers. Like the reformers, the remonstrators insist salvation is God's work. It's all God. We don't add our effort. Okay? They don't agree with the Roman Catholics. But, they say the decision is ours. That the problem with the reformers' picture is the Christian has no choice. God's grace is is irresistible. 
But see, choice is part of being human, isn't it? We're not machines, we're not mere tools, we're people. God treats us as people. So for the remonstrators, grace was different. Warren described it really well a few weeks back. So everyone starts out spiritually dead, just like for the reformers. But God gives everyone a bit of his spirit, enough to understand the gospel, to hear it and and make a genuine decision. Some people say yes, some people say no. Where someone accepts his grace, God continues to work. But others resist God's grace. God's kindness isn't accepted by everyone. So, so going back to our picture of drowning, you're dead in the water, God jumps in, swims to you, and resuscitates you. You awaken with God's hand wrapped around you. He's ready to drag you to shore, and at that moment, you have a decision. You can let him save you. You can relax. Or you can resist. You can kick and flounder about. You can fight God's salvation. It's not like Roman Catholicism. It's not about doing something. You're saved by not doing something. You're not fighting, not resisting God's grace. That means becoming a Christian is a genuine choice. We genuinely decide whether to follow God or not. God's grace made it possible for Matt to believe, but he chose not to. He he resisted grace. Okay. So which one is right? Between the reformers and the remonstrators, who's on the money? Let's switch the question around and have a look at at the Bible's picture. Why do some people believe? What changes say you trust God's message? Matt and I heard the same message. Where's the difference? According to the Bible, it's your heart. Do you remember the Israelites' problem? They were hard-hearted. They had God's law, that they knew what they should do, but they didn't do it because their hearts were hard. God promised he'd fix that. He promised a heart transplant. He said he'd give them a new heart, make them obedient people. We heard the promise in Ezekiel. So have a look again on the outline. Let's see what God says. I, God, will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The reason you believe God's word is your heart has changed. Another way of saying that is that God gives us a new nature. The spirit transforms who we are, changes our very core. So think about it. Our decisions follow our actions, don't they? We like to think we're free, but we actually make our decisions according to who we are, our our nature, our innermost person. We have a fish tank at home. If I started to feel guilty about keeping fish closed up in a tank, I could set my fish free. I could give them a choice where they want to live. So what, what if I simply just took the lid off the tank? See, at that moment, they can get out. They're free. They can choose whether they want to stay or go, can't they? They can stay confined in my tank, or they can be free in the right wide world. It's stupid, isn't it? 
I mean, assuming they're aware, they'll stay put. They're made for water. They want water. It's in their nature. Fish don't choose to leave water. When they do, it's an accident. Well, by nature, we are sinful. We're hard-hearted. We don't love God. We're his enemies. That's what total depravity means. In our nature, we reject God. Give a normal person a choice and they'll choose disobedience every time. The only way we'll make a different choice is if our nature changes. My fish need to be cats. They need to be able to breathe air. They need legs. They need paws. They need to be fundamentally different. And that's what God does by his spirit. He he makes fish cats. He changes our heart. He makes us different people. He, He makes us people who love God. That's what makes grace irresistible. We're changed from from the inside, changed before we even believe. Have a look on your outline. I've given you actually a little excerpt from what the Council of Dort wrote. This is this is the way they said what they said in response to the remonstrators. This is how they explain what God does by his spirit. Moreover, when God carries out his good pleasure, that's of saving his chosen ones, he not only sees to it that the gospel is proclaimed to them outwardly and enlightens their minds powerfully by the Holy Spirit, but he also penetrates into the inmost being of man, opens the closed heart, softens the hard heart, and circumcises the heart that is uncircumcised. God changes us the spirit performs heart surgery it's a radical change but it's the only way we'll choose to follow god and once we've been changed there's no turning back we can't help but believe it's in our nature god's spirit is in us that there's no middle ground so i put a slab of romans in your outline i'll read through it check out what i'm saying You're either controlled by the Spirit or you're controlled by sin. There's no such thing as being partly changed by the Spirit. See if what I'm saying is right. The mind of sinful man is death. But the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful man's mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So either you have the Spirit and you obey God, or you don't and you won't. There are only two natures. Okay, so so why do you believe? What is belief? Belief is evidence of God's Spirit. Your belief shows God has changed you. Paul says it's a sign of God's electing, God's choosing you. Look what he wrote to the Thessalonians. It's a really strange sentence, unless you think this way. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. How does he know they're elect? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. That is, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. People believe because... God's Spirit changes them. 
People believe because God's Spirit transforms them. The remonstrators emphasised our choice, but before we'll ever choose God, we need to be changed. See, otherwise, I'll choose, un- I'll choose unbelief. I only believe because I'm changed. My heart's transformed. I believe because I'm an object of God's grace. Right. So God's grace is irresistible. God has to intervene radically before I believe. It's so radical I'm guaranteed to believe. I can't back out. It's no longer in my nature. Now, you're probably feeling uncomfortable. You might not really gel with what I'm saying. think it's arrogant. So let me convince you. Let me me try and show to you that I think it's a humble way to view salvation. It's the better way to view things. It's the biblical way. So let's look at some objections and see if I can persuade you that irresistible grace is the way that God's grace works. First, you might object that Christians struggle with sin. You know, it's not all plain sailing. So surely that shows we can resist God's spirit. Now, Jeff is actually going to deal with this a lot more next week, so I'm not going to give you a full answer here. But the short answer is, our old nature isn't gone yet. So we receive God's spirit, but our sinful nature still fights back. That's how Galatians describe it. It's in that verse there, Galatians 5. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. Conflict, that's not failure. Your sinful nature is still stubborn, but God's more powerful. God's going to finish his work. God's grace is irresistible. In fact, I'd suggest that struggling with sin is scarier if grace is resistible. See, if, if God leaves us free to choose, we might choose to give in. We might resist grace, fall away. Irresistible grace is good news if you struggle with sin. You can't resist God's grace. Your sinful nature will not win. God will save you despite your old self. Okay, second. People worry that God isn't fair. They, they hear what, that God chooses who he will save, but they say, what if I genuinely seek God? Will he reject me if I'm not chosen? Can you see from today that the answer is no? Because genuine faith, genuine love of God, that's only possible by God's Spirit. We don't love God without his help. So, so there's no such thing as a genuine seeker without God's Spirit. There's no such thing as a genuine seeker who isn't chosen by God. She just doesn't exist. It's like a fish that wants to live on land. It's not natural. So if you think an unchanged sinner can genuinely seek God, you're actually underestimating sin. We're all a lot more sinful than we think. Sinners need changing at their very heart. Third, people complain Tulip is arrogant. That believing in predestination is a claim to superiority because God chose me. But irresistible grace, I think, makes us more humble. It gives God all the glory. I didn't choose God. 
God changed me. I, I hated God until God loved me. The only reason I believe God is that he changed my heart. It's, it's not about me. I wasn't smarter than someone else. I wasn't wiser. I didn't have a natural desire for God. God intervened. I believe God because he loved me. I'm saved because God intervened. Can you see that Tulip is not arrogant? Which finally brings me back to Matt. See, is there any point preaching to Matt? Matt's heard it all before. People more persuasive than me have tried to convince Matt to, to love Jesus. What can I say or do that will make a difference? Well, according to the remonstrators, the difference lies with Matt. It, it's, it's up to Matt. It, he makes the choice. And that means persuasive preaching is essential. If I'm more persuasive, Matt's more likely to believe the gospel. Matt's salvation is in my hands. But what happens when I've tried everything? Maybe Matt just can't be convinced. Maybe he's set in his ways. There's nothing more I can do. I grew up in a church where we used to pray for a major catastrophe to happen to someone because we figured that's the only way they're going to change their mind. But according to the reformers, the power of preaching is with God. His powerful word is used by his powerful spirit to change stubborn sinners. It's not my personality that matters. It's the voice of the shepherd. That's actually the beautiful picture of John 10 that we heard earlier. Jesus is a shepherd calling his sheep. He's not cajoling, persuading, arguing. He's simply calling. Like sheep that recognize their shepherd, the people God has chosen will follow Jesus. They'll hear his word and because of the spirit, they'll believe it. Have a look on your outline. The watchman opens the gate for the shepherd and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Irresistible grace doesn't make preaching pointless. It makes it effective. Even someone like Matt, someone who, who seems totally against Jesus, my preaching can save someone like that. My sharing the gospel with them and telling them about Jesus. Because God's spirit can change Matt. God can make Matt one of his sheep. God can transform even the hardest hearts because his grace is irresistible. After all, he transformed your heart, transformed mine. And finally, irresistible grace makes me do one more thing. It makes me pray. Because God needs to change Matt's heart. Knowing that, I'm going to preach and I'm going to pray. I'm thrown onto my knees. Only praying will make a difference. I don't know if Matt's God's chosen Matt. Nobody does. So I'm not making any assumptions. I'm going to pray for him. God might use that prayer to save him. So I don't know who God has chosen, but I know what every person needs. Every person needs a new heart. God's spirit is their only hope. They, they need change. They need transformation. They need a heart transplant. Nothing else will save them. So I'm going to pray for every person I can. 
I'm not focusing on the people more likely to believe. I'm, I'm going to ask God to change every heart, no matter how hard. And then I'm going to tell them. Won't make any excuses, say I'm too busy, say I'm not persuasive enough, say it won't work. I won't even say they've rejected too many, God too many times. I'm going to do what God's given me to do. Speak his word. Seek his help. Preach. Pray. Publish. Petition. I'm going to beg God to save as many people as possible. It's not a waste of time. Because God can change hard hearts. God's grace is irresistible. Why don't we pray now? Heavenly Father, forgive us for giving up on our friends. Forgive us for thinking people are beyond help. Teach us the power of your grace. Teach us to pray in hope. And teach us to speak with confidence. Please save our friends and our enemies by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.